Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to the Fair Perspectives podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, we speak with Professor Wilfred Riley, an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He's the author of Taboo, 10 Things You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Professor Riley has a knack for speaking about forbidden truths, slaughtering sacred cows, and probing the boundaries of political correctness. In this episode, we discuss the disparities between perception and reality, why these narrative gaps persist, the crisis of expertise, censorship, the true costs of ignoring reality, denying biological sex, the Stop Asian Hate Movement, and how it does nothing to address the very real tensions between the Black and Asian communities. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Wilfred Riley. Welcome, Dr. Riley, to the Fair Perspectives podcast with Angel and me. You know, we've been very excited to talk to you for various reasons. Your Twitter feed is something of a spectacle, to be honest. It's, it's very interesting and engaging. Um, the way you ask questions, you're using uh, social media in a way that, frankly, I aspire to. It's, it's great. I'd love to start with the book you wrote. Um, you wrote a book called Taboo, 10 Things That We Can't Talk About. And one thing I'm really interested in is kind of this gap between reality and narratives. Um, could you kind of summarize a little bit your book and, and some of the taboos that, that, you know, you profiled in it? Sure. So um, thanks for the Twitter compliment, by the way, I used to run a small social media brand with my buddy Ozzy and actually got a fair amount of practice doing this in a big city when the kind of the social trend began. But, um, and from what I've seen, both of you guys are actually very good on social, but in terms of the book in, in all seriousness, the, the, what you just described, the distinction between perception, especially sort of influential up middle class perception in the USA Today and reality is one of the things I focus on in public intellectual and even academic research, because the disparity is very, very big. So for the book Taboo, I looked at a whole series of, I mean, I picked controversial topics that were trending frequently on, say, Google, Lexus, et cetera, but that were considered socially non-starters, things you weren't supposed to talk about other than to perhaps blindly agree with what was being said. And the focus of the book is looking at how accurate the narratives in these sectors were. 
So, I mean, chapter one is Black Lives Matter, and this came out around late 2019. So at this point, the general narrative was Chernobyl on Fox News. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands of unarmed black men being essentially murdered every year. I think it's fair to sum it up that way. Chapter two is interracial crime. So all these stories we're seeing at this time, I mean, Pool Patrol Paula, Barbecue Becky, um, you know, some of the stuff in right wing media in the reverse. Is there bloody racial conflict in the streets with whites getting the better of it? Uh, And I just I go on through a couple of these other things. Systemic racism, the claim that any system that produces a performance gap is racist and very serious people, Abram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, so on down the line. I think it's fair to say Derek Bell did this back in the day, have made this argument. And it's a deeply flawed argument because the most successful groups in the USA are actually East Asians, South Asians, Jews, and Black immigrants. And these are populations that are pretty large. I mean, they're all well over 1% of the population. Asians are around seven now. And that have been known about since our laws in their modern form were written. So if you're making this argument that any gap indicates brutal structuring of society against Blacks, The question is, was the goal to structure it for Asians and Jews? I mean, what was was that the intent? Otherwise, the argument makes no sense at all. So I talk about that for a chapter, talk about immigration, so on down the line. I critique some of the claims on the uh, hard or alt right, like the idea that diversity is rare for big countries, which is just complete nonsense as a political scientist. It's laughably wrong. That's true outside the West. I mean, think of Malaysia, Indonesia, so on down the line of South Africa. It's just not a thing. But um, so I look at 10 of the more prevalent narratives of our time, and I look at how accurate the the storyline, the data behind the narrative is. And what I found was that they were all inaccurate to an incredible degree. Now, I'll shut up in a second because I see you have more questions along this line. But just the the Black Lives Matter one was the, the most obvious example of this. Where, I mean, these claims really were made. I mean, I believe Biko's claim or uh, Ben Crump's claim, uh, certainly Biko's, was that there's an unarmed, a totally innocent black man. His term was murdered basically every day. This happens hundreds of times a year. I mean, uh, Ben Crump's book is called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Uh, In reality, when I and other kind of general quants started looking at this, the total number of unarmed black men shot in a typical year is about 10. Um, last year it was 17 and that was a bad year. You know, all men combined, including the large Caucasian majority, one or two Asian Americans every year, so on down the line. I mean, all people combined, it's maybe a hundred, usually less 60. So this, this entire narrative had been based on absolutely nothing. And this is, that, that struck me not as unusual, but as pretty usual. Many of the stories that are fed to kind of the mainstream taxpayer in a city by media outlets, which are when you get right down to it, ad delivery vehicles, their goal is to sell Ford trucks and boner pills. Most of those narratives are not real. This goes in to shout out to a guy on the left side of the fence, Barry Glasner, who found this out in 1999. It was the same focus. Why do my middle and upper class urban friends who have nothing to fear seem so scared all the damn time? So he asked them, he was trained as a sociologist, as I recall, and people explained they were terrified of plane crashes and inner city black crime and a bunch of things. But the most significant one was young child kidnapping. This was the Amber Alert era. So the idea was that people are going to literally come into your home and snatch your child away. This is when moms were walking around with kids on leashes. You know, this is the start of the helicopter parenting era. And what Glasner found is that the total number of kids that are actually kidnapped in a given year 
like taken away by a non-relative for more than a week, physically or sexually abused, it's, it's around 100. And it, it's what you'd expect because the basic process of walking into a typical armed neighborhood and walking out the screaming kid over your shoulder actually seems really difficult, even as versus, say, a murder. And it actually occurs much, much, much less often. Uh, any inflated figure for kidnapping that you get includes things like fathers that are caught up in ugly custody disputes, taking their son with them for a little bit. So he made this point long ago. The point still stands. Many of the fear-based narratives in society have no basis whatsoever. And you could, you could really go well beyond this. But I mean, the, the final example would probably be COVID for people under 18, where the the total number of deaths in that category over two years of what has been a serious disease epidemic is 600, 621. So most of the narratives I looked at had no factual support whatsoever. Yeah. So this is interesting because this kind of dovetails into one thing that I'm particularly interested in talking to you about, which is the way that you engage on, in these topics with people. Um, Melissa brought up your, your social media presence and your kind of approach. You have this kind of in your face kind of bravado sort of way of, of approaching this. And you're also totally unafraid to call nonsense, nonsense. Right. But there's a, there's a little bit of a difference between you and many other people who engage in this stuff, which is that you're very clearly like a numbers and data guy. And most people are not numbers and data people, right? They like numbers and data when it confirms their priors, but they're, that's not really about the numbers and data. That's more about the confirming the priors. Right. And, you know, you're talking now about how the narratives don't reflect reality, but the narratives persist. And I'm curious what you think is the, is the motive underneath. What's going on? Why does this stuff persist? Why do people want to be afraid all the time? I, I think that the, the final question there is a little above my pay grade. I mean, uh, the human desire for dark excitement is the root of, you know, everything from the BDSM scene to many wars, probably. So I, I don't really... <laughs> I don't know if I can answer that one, but I, I think that. So, first of all, as read the as read the numbers point, I actually I'm a political science professor, but one of the courses I teach is quantitative methods at a pretty good state university. So I, I do think we can empirically examine a lot of questions. And that is part of what I want to make my approach on social. But for that matter, in, in a magazine or a journal as well, like I'm not just giving an opinion. And on the social sciences, even on the hard academic side, that's pretty common. Um, people will title a piece something like a review of the literature on transgenderism and my thoughts. Um, I don't really ever want to do that. I want to see what the factual basis for a position would be. And I think that that essentially that often conflict. So a, a lot of this goes together. Pursuing what the actual factual kind of bedrock of a debate is or should be often comes into conflict with people who say things like, why are you questioning the experts? The experts seem to disagree with you. So, I mean, for example, I just mentioned COVID-19 and the reality, the, the figure that only 600 people under the age of 18 have died of COVID-19 or with COVID-19 might be more appropriate, more than hundred of those cases. That's absolutely non-contested. I mean, you can just Google COVID deaths by sex age. Uh, it's a CDC document. But the response when you bring that up very often will be, I live in a blue state and our entire public health administration has argued that children should wear two masks in any enclosed public spaces until they're double vaccinated. Do you think you know better 
than those experts. And I think that the answer to that pretty often, if you're an intelligent taxpayer, would be yes, if you're using logic. If you know what the data is and what the quote unquote expert is saying doesn't make any sense, then yeah, you are in the stronger position. And there, there are many reasons this might be the case. I mean, the first is just that experts disagree. So, I mean, when, whenever someone says, well, that's the expert position, I mean, there are a whole bunch of questions. You know, what, what's the dissident 40% position in that, that exact same field? What do experts overseas think? I mean, do people in China or France, countries of equivalent power, do they believe that there are 67 equally recognizable genders? And if not, why not? What did experts think five minutes ago is a good question to ask about a lot of the great awakening stuff. I mean, there weren't a lot of people outside the fringe that thought that the USA was a systemically, brutally racist country in like 1999. So what happened? Did, did we start giving more PhDs to people that did? Um, and extreme bias is, is one of the things that produces kind of these changes. Why you see things in the USA today, but not in the USA in 2010 and not in China. Um, I mean, the academy right now, I'm not going to sit around whining about other faculty members for a long time, but the academy is about 93, 94% leftist. I mean, uh, Econ Live, pretty serious site, looked at the political views of professors and found that 18% of them were just communists, at least in the social scientists, in social sciences. That was the number that identified as communist or Marxist specifically. So I think that for a lot of reasons, people that appear very professional and very intelligent can say incredibly dumb things. One reason for this might be that they're dumb to some extent. I mean, we've had in U.S. higher education something like 60 years of both legacy programs and affirmative act. Um, you know, I've never researched this. And, you know, even from the heterodox perspective, it might be pretty toxic to do so. But you'd have to assume there's that has some kind of impact on what the thought you're getting. But at any rate, one of the reasons that people believe a lot of nonsense is what we're just describing. It's the concentration among experts, usually in very niche fields, but niche but influential fields of people that believe this stuff. And a big part of that also is that there's a fair amount of money associated with believing some of this stuff. So one of the things and that this is cynical, but I think just obviously objectively real. One of the facts that's almost never discussed in kind of American polite life is that this gigantic apparatus was set up to defeat kind of old school racism in the 50s and 60s. I mean, the NAACP, which I'm actually a member of, but the ADL, the SPLC, which has a $500 million, like brilliantly invested endowment, all of the different Black Lives Matter and Occupy and so on groups that followed on the heels of that down the road, whatever, whatever Reverend Al is, the National Action Network. But, you know, our push, I mean, these, these major entities that are recognized around the world. So although what they originally came together, and of course, they're also the, the sort of the gay rights and, you know, other group rights groups associated with this kind of main colossus. So, I mean, like I've worked for the HRC before as a canvas activist, as a college kid. So at any rate, none of these people are going to stop fighting for the thing that they originally committed to fight for and lose their jobs. So I think that accounts for a great deal of the fear in this racial sector. One of the reasons that we hear so much about these issues is that large organizations exist to promote them and they have good symbiotic relationships with the media. So every time, not every time, more than half of the time, I would say, a young black man is shot by the police 
there's going to be a concerted effort to get that out into the media ecosystem to contact CNN, MSNBC, The Post, The Times, another one, once again, he too had his hands up, so on. And there's absolutely no ecosystem like that that exists when a poor white or in particular Hispanic man is shot. So that's why we hear less about these stories. So why do we believe this stuff? I mean, you have an extremely biased and in some fields, I'd say captured uh, elite intellectual class. You also have large organizations where people get paid millions of dollars to say certain things. And that that combines, and I'm sure you have some of this stuff on the right too. You, you'd really have to show me that illegal immigrants, for example, have a higher crime rate than African-Americans or Southern whites. Like, I don't think that's true. Uh, the data is very hard to find. I don't, I don't believe that. But everyone has their, their kind of fear points, and it's because people are getting paid. In one sentence, I'm going to ramble it. People are getting paid good money to spit things they believe to people they're friendly with. Right. But see, so what would you say then to, I can easily see the response to that just being to flip it back onto you and say, yeah, the reason you think what you think and the reason why you're disagreeing with my narrative is because, you know, you're, get, you're being fed your stats and your information from people who are being paid to counter the narrative. So, you know, you mentioned that it might be on the right a little bit, right? But I think their point of view is it's, it's overwhelmingly on the right. This is all a propaganda campaign. This is all you know, misinformation, disinformation. So how do you yourself parse that? That's not how quantitative methods work. I mean, to some <laughs> extent, obviously, I know, I know that was a lead-in question, but like the, the, police dispute, the police shooting dispute was resolved when the Washington Post open accessed their police database and everyone could see how many police shootings there were. I mean, so you can still say Black Lives Matter. I mean, they actually did really well with a weak hand there. The people that run the actual BLM Global Foundation, like Patrice Calores, aren't idiots as signified by the four mansions, you know, she's been doing pretty well. The person I don't hate, but you know, anywho, I mean, but although they played defense well, and the, the way they played defense was by saying, well, just, it's the same thing as COVID, just one life, uh, one is too many, you know, there, there's other lower level problems with policing. I don't even disagree with that. Sure. I mean, cops should be polite, not abusive. I mean, both of us are ethnic men. All of us are individuals of color, but I mean, the, the basic reality is that once the police department information on shootings was fully publicly available, once a major newspaper was running this database, we knew how many shootings there were. And the claim had been that there were hundreds or that there were thousands. And it turned out that if you're talking about unarmed individuals and fatal shootings, there were 10 or 12 or 17. So that, that was it. That was the argument. Every argument that had been based on the figure of, say, a thousand had been defeated. So you can say that this is actually one of the more heated conversations I had on Twitter. Um, I posted some statistics on corporate crime, and one of them came from Jacobin, which is like a communist magazine. It's on the far left. And one of them, at least allegedly, I mean, they they did pass a couple uh, citations, but came from VDARE, which is an alt-right site. And I... I don't approve of either Jacobin or VDARE. I mean, if we're going to do these goofy disclaimers, but the, the information on these corporate crimes was absolutely accurate. And my contention would be that that's, that's almost the only thing that matters. I mean, if someone from Pat Buchanan on the far, far right to hockey, my booty on the far, far left, these are both, by the way, serious people that have written bestselling books. But if either one of those guys who I might personally think is alone says something about immigration numbers that's correct. The only question is, are the immigration numbers correct? I mean, so that that's really it. 
I, I don't think there's a debate. You can't counter the immigration numbers by saying, well, those boys are Jacob and are a bunch of communists. So what? Are they correct about the immigration numbers? So I, I think that there, it doesn't really matter what the source of information is unless there's a way to significantly bias that information. And when it comes to most of the things I look at, like murder totals, I'm already, are you implying that like the guys at the Manhattan Institute are hiding corpses? I mean, like people on the center <laughs> right are dragging bodies into gullies or something. I mean, like, no, we know what the murder rate is. Every time there are certain policies adopted, like a decrease in police stops, you see more murder. Now, you might argue that it's worth it because you do, and I'll give the opponent their argument, see fewer police shootings. But I personally am less worried about police shootings of criminals and kids getting shot in the head. So at very least, you can have your position and you can argue it based on fact. And again, I just illustrated how someone could honorably hold a completely different position. But no one can hold a completely different set of police shooting statistics. You can't just do the stuff you frequently see on social where you say, like, well, I don't believe that crap you're saying. Let's double it. No. Why? <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? So, no, there, there is reality. And that, that at the root, by the way, is the source of my disagreement with everything from postmodernism to and I'll say this again, extreme, for example, Evan Christianity on the hard, hard right. Reality just sort of is what it is. I mean, if you say the world's 6,000 years old, that's not, quote unquote, your truth. If you say that there are 67 sexes, that's not, quote unquote, your truth. You're just saying shit that doesn't make sense. And I think it's important that ordinary taxpaying citizens say, no, that, that really doesn't make sense. These are the figures from last year, which are widely available on literally the U.S. government's websites. So I, I think that's the response to, well, you're just a right wing troll. No, not really. I, I do think that this phenomenon that, that you're describing, though, is actually kind of perpetuated because there is this idea floating out there that somehow even, you know, uncomfortable truths can be harmful. And so if those uncomfortable truths are harmful, it is it is best to actually completely deny it. Um, I just saw, you know, a headline. I think it was in The Atlantic today. Jamel Hill, the ESPN reporter, wrote about Anis Kanter, the, the Turkish basketball player who's been, you know, very vocal about uh, China lately, and especially the NBA's hypocrisy, especially considering its response to Black Lives Matter versus the human rights abuses of the Chinese Communist Party. And she said, and the title of the, of the entire piece she wrote was, um, the uh, Anis Kanter's being used by the wrong people. There's this idea that even though he's right, even though the statistics that, that you know, you're pulling out and, 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 and posting it on Twitter um, is right. And all the taboos that you, you actually go through in your book, the implications, what it means for, for policy, for, um, you know, sort of the, the uh, interpretation of those facts, that is because that's likely to be harmful, we should just deny it. That seems to me to be what's happening. And how do you respond to that? First of all, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I think that the, uh, the idea in society from kind of the, these blue noses on this boring HR center left, it isn't that the things that are coming from funny, edgy people on the, the new right or on the left, and by new right, I mean new people on the right, not some kind of French movement, but it's they're the actual, you know, Marxist left. The response isn't that the things that are being said are false. It's exactly what you said, that they're true, but they might hurt somebody. So the focus of censorship today, and I would actually suspect the focus of censorship throughout history, 
is not on removing false information. It's on removing true information that powerful people don't like. Um, why is that a bad idea? I mean, I think this gets back again to John Stuart Mill and all the books that people should have been reading instead of bell hooks in college. But a couple of obvious points. First, it does a lot of harm to ignore facts that are true if you're especially concerned about this particular category of harm. And I mean, if, if you're talking about, for example, the police stops uh, case that we just went through, if you don't want to note that there's a very high crime rate in urban and especially African-American communities, and so you pretend that the high number of encounters with the police in cities is just due to racism because it makes people feel good to believe this, and then you pull back the police, what you see is that an additional, say, 10,000 people per year are going to die. I mean, murders last year jumped from, I believe it was 14,000, something around there, to 20,000. We hit 20,000 homicides last year. COVID had an impact, but it was at least partly due to what I just described for every serious person in criminal justice that I've read. Um, that's the first time that had happened since, I believe, 1994. So when you say, why would we say something that's risky, that's iffy, that might hurt someone's feelings? Well, because if we ignore reality, you might end up with a lot of people dead. Um, I think another point also is that this argument really is just pure power in action, like the idea of repressive tolerance for Marcusa, because anyone could make this point. Um, I mean, a trad Catholic could say, well, denying the existence of God and his mother Mary to me feels very harmful. It feels very insulting. Shut down the biology department. I don't think that's a valid argument. So not only can there be actual practical harms associated with the large-scale ignoring of reality, we also don't want to let one group of people decide what the acceptable truths are. You know, right now, that might be left-leaning urbanites. What if in the future, it's evangelical Christians who are having more children than anyone else in the heartland? Are we going to simply ignore the realities of science? And I don't mean to be glib or crude with this, but these debates have come up in sort of odd settings. Um, for example, I was reading some old Thomas Sowell at one point, and one of the arguments against sex education was that if you taught men what a clitoris was, people would start having more sex, essentially. It was that this was forbidden, iffy knowledge. Guys didn't necessarily need to know that. I think that's probably a good thing for people in society to be aware of. Like, this is swept across sexuality. It's swept across policing. It's This idea is not new, and it's always bad. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think we can all agree that it's a good idea for men to know where the clitoris is. <laughs> um, I'm going to just make a whole bunch of jokes at this point, but no, I mean that like that actually, I was dead serious with that. That was a real example that if you teach kids the basics of sex, to some extent, how to be good in bed, I mean, the, these are the pleasure points for a human, they will have sex more. So you shouldn't. There should be no, probably no classes in college, certainly none in high school, none that touch on this. And I think even there, like there's a real actual impact in terms of you know, effective divorce on society or something of just not saying things that are true. So in general, I'm pro saying things that are true. And that that actually that that shouldn't be a radical position. Like all of our boy Colin Wright was on a, the Tucker Carlson show the other day defending the radical position that sex is real. And this is interesting because I, I never thought I'd have to hear someone defend it, but apparently a decent number of people on the hard left don't believe this. I mean, there was a famous graphic in Scientific American, sex is a total spectrum. 
And this idea is leading to a whole range of things. Like we've recently seen a string of the best women swimming performances in history. So the uh, one of the competitors for, I believe, UPenn just won an event by 38 seconds, which if you follow swimming even as casually as I do is remarkable. It's something that you never see. It's like being a lap ahead on the track. And that's because they're biologically male. They identify as trans. I have no problem with the pronouns. But that is the consequence of politely saying, yes, sure, sex is not real because some people have intersex conditions or some people have these complex, quote unquote, gender identities, is that you have to deal with real problems. Like, do you send convicted rapists that are biologically male into women's prisons? That's something that a number of states have done. And the conversation about this to me is insane. Because the female inmates are saying, look, there have been incidents like we don't want to be jailed with male rapists. And they're being described as what's the term turf. They're being described as sort of transphobic bigots like we need to shut down these prejudiced women who are the equivalent of racists so we can give these trans inmates their civil rights. Like this sort of thing is the impact of ignoring reality and the the entire trans debate, which I'm not going to focus on here, but that really gets to the core of this question. Like there actually is a mental condition where people strongly associate with the gender characteristics that are tied to the opposite sex. And everyone to some extent wants to be polite to individuals that are in this position. But does avoiding the hard truth, I guess in this context, that there are sexes, for whatever reason, I'm kind of dry throat if I sound a little odd, but does ignoring the hard truth that there are sexes have real implications? And the answer is, yeah, of course it does. One of the implications could be a rapist in prison with a group of women. So at some point, reality has to rear its not always attractive head and people have to pay attention to it. Reality exists. Right. You know, what's interesting to me, this kind of dovetails nicely into your book about hoaxes and the whole uh, Juicy Smoye thing, uh, which is which is happening right now, which is it's kind of a, a little bit segue of segue there. Yeah, there's a little bit of a. Uh, there's a little bit of the inverse going on as well. You know, it's, it's, it's not even the, the wanting to deny ugly realities, but wanting to deny significantly objectively better realities. We want to have a reality that's worse. That's kind of what's going on with the, with the whole thing about hoax, hoax hate crimes and whatnot. And wanting to hang on to this, to this narrative, even in the face of all evidence to the contrary. It's, it's very interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that, what, the dynamic there. We want some ugly realities suppressed, but we want other ugly realities to take center stage, even if they're not realities. Well, I, I think in one sentence, the, the shared characteristic of these kind of quasi-religious, and I would throw in actually religious movements, is a denial of objective reality in favor of power. So the idea is that what's true doesn't matter as much as what our agenda is. And if you really get into sort of Foucauldian postmodernism, our agenda defines what is true. Uh, and the, the, these traits are shared across all of these philosophies. Again, some, certainly some parallels with traditional religion, which has a role in society, which I'm not always all that fond of. But I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily see a difference in outcomes between the two sort of sets of lies. So, I mean, in one, in one case, the idea on the radical left, where you most often see this stuff, one set of lies is associated with moving society forward as the activist perceives it. So the lies about, or yeah, the lies about the non-existence of sex and the 
changeability of humanity, the lies about the blank slate, those are designed to facilitate moving society forward toward goals that the person promoting this stuff wants. Another set of lies is sort of designed to remove the impediments to that. So if if what's being said to justify moving society forward is, you know, not only this is how human nature is, but also there is this block of evil that my solutions are needed to deal with. You can attack that either at the my solutions are needed to deal with or there's this, there is this block of evil. That, that was a little rambling, but I mean, the, the basic idea with the Jussie Smollett case is that obviously there's still an extraordinary amount of active, violent racism in society. And yeah, that's, that's not true. I'm, I'm actually probably going to end that there. I, I think that the, the important thing is the denial of reality. So in most cases, it's fairly simple to figure out what reality is. Again, um, actually a brief note on interracial crime. We have an annual crime report. It's the Beru of Justice Statistics or BJS report. And it's actually one of the better pieces of social science the USA does annually. I mean, we survey something like 200,000 people with anonymous, generally same race interviewers. We ask them about their experiences with crime. It specifically emphasizes they're getting a chance to sort of help the country. This isn't, this isn't going to result in any, in any direct arrest. And people detail the, the criminal experiences that they've had to some extent. I mean, there's, there's no one that, ever really argued this isn't pretty reliable. So we know how many, for example, white on black, black on white, et cetera, crimes there are in a typical year. And in a typical year, I mean, first of all, interracial, interracial violent crime is not a major problem. I mean, one of my sort of dinner speech lines is the person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife. But that's actually true. It's, or your current husband, which I think says something interesting about the differences between men and women there. Men, more stupid brutality in the moment. Women, perhaps more thought about what's going to happen. But at any rate, um, inter- or about marriage. Violent crime. <laughs> what's up? Or about the institution of marriage. <laughs> yeah. That says more about the institution of marriage than anything. That's what I feel. Houses are very likely to kill each other. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, if, I mean, we're all social scientists. You know, I mean, you'd, you'd have to demonstrate that spouses are more likely to kill each other than lovers yeah. that spend the same amount of time together, but that aren't married. I, that's actually an interesting yeah. question. I'd be fascinated in looking at that, actually. Like, does is is a husband safer to have around than a boyfriend, boyfriend. or a lover? Or is he worse? Um, I don't know. Like, that's actually an empirical test of kind of the value of marriage. I haven't seen a lot of those from kind of the feminist side. But at, at any rate, I mean, interracial violent crime between blacks and whites is three percent of serious crime, first of all. Um, and it's also 80 plus percent black on white. That's, again, one of those things that's never discussed. But I mean, if you just go into the BJS report last year, there were only about 600,000 violent interracial crimes. If you're confining that to blacks and whites, this is out of 20 million crimes. Um, this is the 2019 report, actually. But of those crimes, like if you're going to focus on this sort of niche thing at all, there's almost no argument from the left. I mean, there are five times as many whites. They have more money. There's a higher overall black crime rate. So of those crimes, I mean, you're literally talking about 500,000 black on white as versus a little under 100,000 white on black. Um, there have been years where white on black has gone down to 59, 60,000. So objectively, again, the claim that there's a lot of violent racism, that incidents like what Smollett experienced are common, there's, there's no argument for that at all. There are only about 7,000 hate crimes specifically in a typical year. But again, 
the purpose there is the lie about the evil of current society, as opposed to the lie about the achievability of future society. And when you combine those two things, lies about the problems of current society and lies about the potential of the future, you've got most of the woke agenda. I mean, very little of it is actually functional and fact-based, in my opinion. I think I started to, especially in the last year, you, you know, it's it's pretty obvious that um, the media has been kind of drumming up, especially the um, AAPI, anti-AAPI oh, yeah. sort of hate crimes. Um, I think now the acronym is AAPINH. It's now, there's a few more letters that have been added on. Um, and and what you see is, is um, not only like reporting um, that drums up this phenomenon, but also, you know, foundations that are newly created and, and touted by celebrities, you know, funded to the tune of almost a billion dollars to, to counter AAPI hate. Um, this this term has has really kind of like cemented um, in, in in the public discourse, and and you know it's it, the media is also very um, specific in how it chooses to cover this kind of hate. In in terms of, for example, the the tale of two cities, right? What happened in Kenosha versus Wakausha? When we insert rate a, a perpetrators race into the headline, um, you know, it was obviously uh, the media had a field day when it was uh, that Asian spa shooting that happened to actually, you know, kill not just Asian women, but but two other people of different races who were completely ignored. Um, this kind of, of reporting seems to cement and drive this perception of there's this, you know, that the United States is gripped by just white supremacist racial violence. Yeah, I, th- I think the Stop Asian Hate case is a classic example of a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. So, I mean, just going from the top, first of all, I find the different racial acronyms, you know, the post-BIPOC era almost entertaining. I mean, a new one just dropped today and it's the worst I've ever heard. It's Massa. So it's like it's like Muslim, Arabic and South Asian. I mean, I could be wrong about the composites, but it's Massa pronounced like Massa. Oh, so, my God. Enough, if you pronounced it Massa, <laughs> that would be a tortilla flour. and It would be mocked just as much by people from Latino communities. So this is this is another like Latinx <laughs> attempt by white progs to define things, these minority communities. And yeah, also, right. I, I note that you're lumping together South Indians with Muslims and so on. Exactly. I mean, these are people that were fighting wars when Westerners were still painting themselves blue and, you know, chasing wild war <laughs> through the woods. So, I mean, it, it, there's a there's a lack of knowledge about the other great cultures of the world that underlies a lot of this sort of a blase, suburban, upper middle class fake revolution. But anywho, leaving aside the fact that MASA is an actual racial acronym and one of the funniest ever. Um, the Stop AAPI hate movement illustrates a lot of the problems with this sort of woke, anti-woke back and forth today, and especially with the woke position within it. So first of all, violence against Asian Americans is a problem. Like we did see an increase in hate crimes last year. Different groups fought more, just as people within the same group did, during a very tough year defined by COVID, defined by an increase in crime. We absolutely want to lock up the bums that were abusing these elderly Asian women and so on. But yeah, the the immediate media narrative was the easy, cheap one. Like, of course, we oppose violence against Asians. I'm sure they do. I'm sure the entire Times newsroom does. 
but we're going to pin it on a culprit that no one will get mad at us for describing, and that's white supremacy. So certainly some of the people involved in these anti-Asian cases were moody white losers. I mean, the spa shooter actually seemed to have some kind of weird sexual fetish. Like he felt compelled to go to these sort of happy ending massage parlors, but he hated these women. And this is very common when it comes to abusive sex workers, by the way. He hated these women that he thought were dragging him in there. I'm sure they would have been glad not to see him again. But he went in there and attacked and killed, as you mentioned, a number of people, not all of them Asian American. But the reality of uh, the attacks on Asians is I think everyone who has a computer knows. And I actually, I wrote a piece about this for commentary, where, again, used standard methods, broke down probably the 200 most prominent cases. The reality is that 60 or 70 percent of the people involved in these cases were black. And they were actually pretty diverse. I mean, these are large integrated cities with large black populations. So the overrepresentation was real, it was substantial, but it wasn't total. There were also Hispanic criminals. There were white criminals. But these just seemed to be kind of diverse city kids attacking Asians. Many of them had mental conditions that had probably been exacerbated by COVID. White supremacy had almost nothing to do with the problem. Not a single person identified as a hammer skin or something like that, as a member of an organized white supremacist group. And again, I I minimize this a little, do want to repeat it. 60 percent of them were black. You know, so the real story was out there. It was diverse, mostly black group of people are attacking Asians for money or because they're scumbags. That, that's not what the press went with. The press went with this is another example of whiteness. And when you call people on this, when you say, look, and I, I think this is one of the useful things about FAIR and about other organizations like 1776 Unites, the people involved are pretty clearly diverse, normal taxpayers that aren't racist. So when you stand up as someone who's, you know, an equal on the debate stage and you say, look, we all oppose racism, obviously, but what what your narrative, the basis of the bases of your narrative don't make a lot of sense. I mean, this is a very diverse group of people. The responses reveal this crazy dissonance. So, I mean, I've been told many times that black people were doing this because they had been provoked by Fox News. For example, like, well, the stuff Donald Trump talking about the Kung flu and Tucker Carlson being xenophobic, allegedly, all that's out there. And black people see it, too. And that's the cause. And I mean, in reality, if you spend a day on black Twitter, you know, that's not true. I mean, there there are substantial black Asian tensions in big cities. Their entire hit songs like Meet the Flockers that are just about how to rob Asian people. There are at least four. I mean, you know, there's a famous line from Drag On from the Rough Riders that was on a song I used to work out to before high school sports. But I mean, it's like, you know how many bleeps, a word for Asian Americans and Jews dragged undragged out on my cash route. And he goes into this like minute long description of robbing small storekeepers, which is a thing that happens. So that reality is simply, as you said, Angel, it's too ugly to discuss. And so you fall back to, you know, poor whites, the group you can always criticize. But that's not helpful because there aren't a whole lot of poor white Nazis in San Jose. Right. Yeah, Spotify no, I mean, ended up removing those songs, by the way. Um, did they, they did. They did in the post, you know, anti uh, stop API hate kind of movement that, that bubbled up. Um, Spotify yeah. did remove it. But, you know, again, is this the, the prescription for, for that? You know, for, for it? Is this a matter more of... Um, life imitating art or art imitating life. I, I personally think it's the latter, I, you know, a- Asians and. Um, I just screen shared actually, because I, 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 went, oh. I went on, I had YT up instead of Spotify, but I just pulled up YouTube. It's back up. 
They oh, took it down is? For a little. Meet the Flockers, 139,000 views by YG. No way. Yeah, it's, these are all stop Asian hate. I mean, this lasted like a couple of weeks, this virtue signal. YG, Meet the Flockers. So they, they, oh, they actually have the one with TC4800 where he goes through the whole thing about how to rob Asian. Like pick a Chinese neighborhood. They got fat wallets. <laughs> but there, there's a subtlety here, right? Okay. Like, I, 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 again, is this driven by racial prejudice specifically or opportunism in the sense oh, yeah. that, that, you know, a lot of uh, uh, the Asian community lives in these highly urban areas. They open bodegas, small markets. There are these tensions, as you describe, you know, working class kind of. Uh, so it goes all the way back to, you know, what happened with the Rodney King, where, where the Korean store you know, uh, owner actually like shot um, a black woman, I think, a teenager who she thought was shoplifting. Yeah, yeah. I remember this. I mean, I grew up in and around New York City, so I'm very, you know, in the middle of all this stuff. And yeah, I mean, I remember growing up watching In Living Color on on TV and there are plenty of gags about, you know, the Korean grocery store owner and the ten- the racial tensions of, you know, the minute someone who, you know, is racialized black comes in and, you know, they're, they're staring at them, following them around, you know, it's, you're, you're walking around too long, all that sort of stuff that that tension has been around for a long time. So it is definitely real. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how, and, and that should be yeah. where the conversation is. Right. And now, right. now those tensions are bubbling up into school admissions, into what's happening, you know, um, say affirmative action and all those other issues that that we're seeing now kind of take over the K to 12. Absolutely. And I mean, it's the, the thing that's interesting about this is, again, none of us is a bigot. And I'm sure there's fault on both sides in terms of the in, the race relations in a big city. Although, really, I, I think there's less fault on the Asian side in a lot of these cases. I mean, there there's more targeting of Asian. No, I mean, obviously, Asians are just racist to black people. Elite. I mean, everyone exactly. is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a contest. Yeah. I mean, like, no, it's it's uh, you're yeah. number one. In the, I mean, but no, like, <laughs> obviously. Here, too, we excel. No, I mean, I don't. I, I think that all people have pretty much the same level of racial bias in the USA right now at the group level, by the way. It seems to be about 10 to 12 percent bigots in most groups. I, I don't think Asians are ahead of that. But I guess obviously there are. So, first of all, I think that this illustrates the problems with a lot of these stupid terms like POC or even BIPOC. When a black New Yorker walks into a Korean New Yorker store, they don't slap each other on the ass and say, hey, teammate. You know, there's a substantial <laughs> amount of conflict between those two communities with, yeah. you know, sins on both sides that parallels the conflict between either and the white community. People are just people. So this idea that white people invented racism or class or caste in the past 150 years for quasi-scientific reasons is nonsensical. I mean, I've read the laws of Manu. I mean, th- this human tribalism is one of the oldest tendencies among humans. So basically, in one sense, regardless of what you think either side could do to reduce tensions, and I do personally think robbing storekeepers is worse than being mildly personally racist, but the discussion should be about this. It should be on comedy meetings between Black and Asian business communities and that kind of thing. The white outsider suburbanites who might be white supremacists have nothing to do with the conversation. They're just brought in there because they're an easy foil for the people that are leading the conversation. And we see that we see this sort of thing over and over again, by the way. I mean, an old joke on the right is that no matter what the problem is, you're going to see the same three or four left wing solutions. Like we, we need a more socialized governmental policy to tackle this. Climate change must have played a role. 
this kind of thing. I mean, we recently saw a rise in suicides among young Americans, which, by the way, is tragic. I mean, it's not nothing really to be said about that. It's at all funnier than Levin's the problem. But the obvious cause of this is the COVID lockdowns, in my opinion, and the opinion of most people I know in professional psychology. But the official U.S. government statement about it from Dr. Gupta included all these other things like the stress caused by climate change. And the reality is that 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 may be a very latent background factor, but that didn't increase last year. That has nothing to do with the issue. So similarly, just as there's always going to be a focus on communalism or climate or something like that in a document that comes from the left, it's always going to be very easy to pick one of the old enemies like white racism. What people, what FAIR needs to do and what similar organizations need to do is like kindly guide the hand toward newer problems, I think. Today in America, traditional KKK-style white racism is not one of the 50 biggest problems in the country. No one could seriously think that it is. There are residual problems in Black communities that are due to past racism, like street gangs and working class communities of all colors, including Asian communities, by the way, and very specifically in the Black community, often evolved to protect that neighborhood from outsiders. In the Black community, that often was whites. But it's not 1950 anymore. If you have a very prevalent gang culture in urban Black areas now, you need to stop the gangs, whether that's by offering jobs or by offering prisoner death. But you can't just keep saying, well, the reason for this is that long ago a race war was lost. So what? I mean, large countries like ours have an endless litany of sins committed by everyone against everyone else. We, in part, we put the entire Japanese community in concentration camps. That's not good, but we did our best to make amends and now people proceed forward. So the question is how to solve the problems of today with the solutions of today, to quote the great political scientist Dave Chappelle. <laughs> right. So. Uh... Before we start wrapping up here with uh, our final question that we ask everyone, uh, I'm curious, you know, you're an educator, you deal with students. I'm curious what, what your approach and all the, the data that you have in your head and that you use to make your arguments, how that's received by your student body and, and what, what kind of, what's the climate for you there? Actually, it's pretty good. I mean, I think that, again, in terms of like how all of us would be, everyone on this panel, I think, would be received at a diverse event in New York or Chicago. I mean, quite well because I'm not a racist. I mean, it, it, that, that's basically the point. One of the things that I do get from my students is deep surprise. So, I mean, we've, Angel, we've both argued with a lot of the people on kind of the sociological leading left right now, Rod Graham, Matsukita, Kevin Bird, so on, online, I mean, as well as in person. And I, I use some of that work in my classes. I wouldn't bother to argue with someone I thought was a fool. But I also use Thomas Salt, Walter Williams, Shelby Steele, uh, so on down the line. And people are very John Stuart Mill. And people are often very surprised that they've never heard these arguments before. I think that that's that's the most shocking reaction that they are. They're totally unaware. And I mean, someone like Charles Murray would just be an evil ghost on the horizon. But I mean, it's <laughs> the idea that half of the discussion hasn't been had is a big problem in higher and secondary education. Like, I mean, the the best like the the question about the 1619 Project when they won the Pulitzer. I actually don't hate the 1619 Project as much as some people do, but the award was ridiculous. And there, there's just a very basic question. Was this the most factually based, solidly done piece of reporting in 2020? I mean, as versus, say, anything on COVID, you know, anything on BLM and racial conflict? And the answer is no. So if you present only, you know, the Bell Hooks, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo school of thought to people, 
people are going to think, well, these must be the brightest out there. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think any of us would do at least as well in a conversation with any of the people I just named. So you, you kind of present the any of us and students are in general pretty receptive to that. Dr. Riley, um, so, you know, if, if you didn't have to basically constantly talk about basic truths <laughs> and what cannot be said um, or race issues, your, your research is actually pretty interesting, right? Like y- you do um, academic research on things like terrorism and war. Um, what is what would you be talking about if you didn't have to talk about this stuff? Well, I would actually still, I mean, in a, in a world where none of it had ever existed, I mean, I would probably focus on the internal causes and uh, international causes of conflict, especially military conflict. But I mean, I, I think that in any, in any world that resembles this one, I would be interested in empirical tests of some of the broader stuff here. For example, I mean, a project I've been working on for a while that keeps getting delayed, but that I want to get out this year is actually giving the standard scale of privilege to thousands of people and seeing whether whiteness, quote unquote, has a significant effect on people's performance. And also what else does? When I've done this in small scale classroom administrations and so on, about 70, 75% of quote unquote privilege seems to be just pure social class. That's what I would suspect is true. But I would still be interested in doing something like that absent the latest round of wokery. But I mean, my next professional paper for the Midwest and probably American political science conferences actually looks at COVID-19. It looks at what predicted national success against COVID. So, I mean, I look at a range of variables from, you know, background characteristics, mean temperature in the country over to leadership style is the country autocratic, democratic, and then their response to the disease. I mean, did lockdowns do anything? And by the way, so far, the, the data indicates lockdowns didn't do anything at all, um, assuming that you encourage kind of logical NPI, like maybe a mask before you get vaccinated or something like that. But um, certainly trust in the government, trust in the government actually had a major effect on COVID-19 deaths and seems to be one of the reasons that the USA trailed some other major countries. The less people believed the talking heads on television, I think this is a problem with Trump and Fauci and so on probably the less they responded to, you know, encouragement to stay home or something like that. So actually, the, the Asian states, which tend to be homogenous, um, brutally but fairly well governed, a high level of institutional trust did, uh, did quite well against the disease. Japan, South Korea, so on, are, are world leaders we really should be looking at. And for whatever reason, we aren't. Asian hate, maybe. <laughs> but more, real, more realistically, I think we just focus on the West. The West did terribly. Actually, Africa did better than the West. I mean, they, they focused and stable Africa, by the way, Nigeria and so on, South Africa is, I think, a region we're going to have to contend with in the next couple of decades, certainly century. But I mean, they protected seniors. They had a young population. It's hot. They didn't do some of the stupid things we did. I mean, the the large Western states, the UK, Belgium and so on, probably turned in the worst performances in the world. Right. Well, uh, our last question for you, Will, before we let you go, you kind of touched on it a minute ago. But our, you know, our focus here at FAIR is providing a pro-human alternative okay. to approaching the issues that we've been talking about, all these issues of the day. So I'm curious, what does being pro-human mean to you? How do you conceptualize that? And how do you think everyday people can you know, take a pro-human approach to doing these things in their lives, in their communities? I think that the essence of being pro-human is recognizing that the smallest and most persecuted minority is the individual. 
So when you actually do good quantitative research, I never, for example, when I'm sampling, pick a certain number of blacks or a certain number of whites for a survey, because there's so many characteristics about individuals, class, sexual orientation, sex, urban, rural, north, south, region, political attitude, so on, that each person is a unique individual. So if you try to sample along one axis, you almost always screw up what you're doing. In fact, that, that's a fascinating, almost mathematical insight that I've had for, for quite a while. So the basis of being pro-human is treating each person as an individual. Sometimes at the governmental level, you might quietly implement a policy class-based affirmative action that'll help one group for a period of time. I'm not, not always against that. But when you look at a policy or at a person, you should ask yourself, is this moral when it comes to its effect on individual human beings that I'll be interacting with? And I think a lot of the things that are being currently proposed right now, especially on the political left, really don't meet that standard. It's almost always sort of in justifies the means logic. Like, yeah, we're keeping the kid of a struggling Asian immigrant family out of Princeton, but we're doing that because this other kid has also experienced some kind of trouble in life. I think that's very rarely justified. Being pro-human means trying to do the things that you would want done to you as an individual moving forward in society. I think that's a very good, simple way of putting it. Beautifully put. Dr. Wilford Riley, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Fair Perspectives. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to join the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For transcripts of podcast episodes as well as access to exclusive Fair Perspectives content, visit us at fairperspectives.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.